If we're only viewing a suicidal individual as a problem, we've already created a barrier, right? You have to see them for more than just that because they're not a problem. They're a person in pain. That first step of meeting someone where they're at, everyone can do. We're all crisis intervention specialists. You're not there to fix. You're there to feel with them. My parents had no idea of what my experience was because there was no internet. The human soul is not looking to be fixed or advised or saved. It's just looking to be met as it is. Welcome to the In Search of More podcast. I am your host, Ellie Nash. Join me weekly on my quest for more. More from myself and more from this world. We'll see you on the other side. All right. Welcome, Lee. Thank you for having me. I'm sitting here with Lee Yaffe, a crisis intervention specialist. Got that right. So... Um, I know Lee from her work at Aleph. Aleph is an organization uh, which assists Jews in compromised situations. Yes. I want to say compromised necessarily because either prison or the army. Right. Right. So it's just needing a, a different level of support. Right. So you and I met then. There was an individual you were helping who needed work. You introduced him to me. And then afterwards, uh, you made a detour into suicide prevention. Right. <laughs> okay. So let's... Uh, Let's talk about that. How did that happen? Oh, man. <laughs> it really was a detour. Um, I got started in suicide prevention six and a half, almost seven years ago. Um, I kind of fell into it by accident. So I was, before Aleph, um, I was an advisor for rabbis and teens at the Chabad Teen Network, which is an after-school program for teens who are looking to become more involved in Jewish practice. Is that also known as C-Teen? C-Teen. Same thing. Okay. And um, I was an advisor working mainly in curriculum development. But because of that role, I was kind of bridging the gap between the work I was doing and, and working with individuals. And very often, more often than I was prepared for, people would call me, rabbis would call me, teens would call me and say, hey, I have someone in my community who's in crisis. Can you help? And the reason they were coming to me is because I was a trusted advisor, not because I had any skill or background at all. And so my role kind of shifted into referring people and referral service and finding the right people. And then eventually when this was happening for like two or three years. This was I, happening often enough that... So often. Wow. So often. I was at C-Teen for six years. We had 10 suicides that I'm aware of. When you say we, what does that mean? Meaning... I felt very connected to the global community there. There were 500 chapters worldwide. I had my hand in every single chapter in some way, either developing the programs that they were using or coaching them through developing new programs, leadership, you know, all kinds of different things. And so when I say we, I mean the, the chapters on individual levels lost teens to suicide, but it felt like a right. global Understood. loss, you know. Um, so were these necessarily people you interacted with prior? No. No, but just knowing and, But that. then it did start to happen that it was teens that I had interacted with who were coming to me with their own struggles, with their own suicidal ideation, with their own crises and saying to me like, hey, I need help and I trust you. And my, my internal reaction would be like, but why are you coming to me? I'm not, I'm not a licensed professional. Um, and so it got to the point where I, I made the move to get certified in crisis management and in suicide prevention education, really just so that I would have the right answer or a answer, an answer for when people would call me. Um, 
And fast forward to about four and a half years ago, once I was certified, I just started the, the chapters that I was working with asked me to come teach in their communities. Um, long story short, the long short road, here we are. <laughs> so now for the last, officially for the last four years, this, is, this has been my career of going into communities, educating on suicide awareness, educating on emotional regulation, helping communities from, from synagogues to fire stations um, establish best practices for the mental wellness of their constituents. So that could be anything from like, how do you set up a crisis plan and who do you call if there's a crisis to like, you know, teaching a class on meditation, mindfulness, emotional regulation. Understood. Yeah. So the work quite literally found you. Yeah, it fell into my lap. Was there one story that pushed you over the edge? Or yeah, was just 100%. You want to share that one? Sure. So about two years into receiving these phone calls, um, I was running a leadership retreat for the teens. And these are teens from all over the country. I interacted with them on a regular basis, virtually, you know, on Skype, on Zoom, FaceTime, talking to them on the phone, seeing them once a year or twice a year at events. So I had some kind of a personal connection with all of the kids that were there, but I didn't, I wasn't the type of person that was in their life on a daily basis. And we had, it was a Shabbat, and we were just sitting around talking and we had this very superficial conversation about what do you do if a friend is in crisis? Like, how do you support a friend? And just, you know, bouncing ideas around. And when that conversation was over, a young woman came over to me and asked if we could go for a walk and speak. And we weren't even out of earshot from the rest of the group when she just broke down in tears and just poured her heart out to me about a suicide attempt that she had just had before coming on this event. And that was like, Again, in my head, I was like, why are you telling me this? And the second thing was, what am I supposed to do? And so instinct instinctively, I was like, I can't fix this. I can't solve this for her. The only thing I can do is hug her and listen. And so that's what I did. There happened to be someone in the building who very briefly overheard this conversation. And so when the girl got up to go to the bathroom, the woman kind of pulled me aside and she was like, that looked serious. Are you okay? And I was like, I'm actually not okay. She just confided in me. Like, I don't know what to do. And this woman was trained in crisis management, a Rebitson. So she was like, let me help, please. I'm going to give you the rundown of what we can do. This is how we're going to keep her safe. And just running through the checklist with me. And when Shabbat was over and we like ensured this girl's safety, I went over to her and I was like, I, I want you to be my mentor. Like, please teach me what you know. And she was like, well, I'll just send you to where I got trained. And so... Got and it. so and so it began. Understood. Yeah. So when you go into community and one of the reasons you're in Miami is because you were. Yes, uh, I did a weekend wellness retreat for um, a Chabad community in Boca this weekend. Cool. Yeah. So who are you speaking to? Is it teens? Is it people caring for teens? Is it both? And um, some idea of what it is you're. Sure. So you're communicating. my goal is to reach everyone, but I also recognize that different demographics have different needs. So our, you know, when I started, my main group of people was teens because that was, you know, that was where I was seeing the area of need. Um, but since then, as a team, we've branched out to reaching, uh, you know, everyone. So when I go into a community, I really try to make sure that we're hitting as many groups as possible. So if I'm going to train, for example, in a high school or in a college, I make sure that the, the students are trained, the 
faculty is trained and the parents are trained because it's three different conversations, but they have to exist together in order for there to be a network of safety. Cause I'm only coming in for what, two to six hours at most. And then they're left to figure out when some, you know, they can always call me, but I'm not usually in the same neighborhood as them. So, you know, with teens or with students, the conversation is how do you support a friend without, you know, drowning with them with a parent or with a parent body, it's how do you recognize when your teen is in crisis and take them seriously? And with faculty, it's how do you bridge the gap between working with your students and working with the parent body and making sure that everyone's on the same page? And then simultaneously in all three conversations, it's also about how do you keep yourself safe, right? If you're in crisis or if working with somebody else, supporting someone else who's struggling is negatively impacting you, what should you do about it? And then one of the things that I've noticed in the years of doing this is when I go into a community to talk about suicide awareness, there will always be one, two, five people in the room who will come up to me and say, you know, I'm not dealing with this particular issue in my life. However, how do I become mentally strong? How do I regulate my emotions? Right, how there's do something I, else going there's on. There's something else going on because mental health really exists on a spectrum and crisis is one end of that spectrum, but there's so many other ways that we can help people. And there's a lot of different kinds of crises. Right. So in the last three years, we've really, as a team, we've branched out into offering more than just that immediate, like, what do you do if someone is, God forbid, you know, at the edge of a building? How do you, how do you help prevent that from even occurring in the first place? Let's talk about your organization, the the longer the long short road. The long short road. Okay, I'll just get rid of the years. <laughs> the long short road. Can you explain the name? Sure. So the name, the concept for the name comes from the Tanya. Um, it's the seminal book on Hasidic philosophy for the Chabad community. And in the introduction to the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe, who was the author of the Tanya, discusses the two paths to attaining personal freedom, connection with God. And the two ideas, the two concepts are the short long road or the long short road. So the short long road is the approach that most people look for in life, which is the shortcuts. How can I get to my goal as fast, as easy, as seamlessly as possible? When you try to take shortcuts though, that usually doesn't work, right? Like there's no shortcut to losing weight. There's no shortcut to exercise. You have to put in the work for the work to work, right? So there's a short, long way, which is I'm going to try to take shortcuts, but eventually I'm going to have to go back to the beginning of the road and start again. Or there's the long, short road. I'm taking the long path to start. I recognize that there's going to be work involved. I recognize that there's no guarantees, but I'm willing to put in the work and from the onset, take that longer road, knowing that I might get to my destination faster by not trying to take shortcuts to begin with. And for me, that's how I look at mental health because there's no shortcut to being a mentally strong person. And that's not even, you know, I'm not even talking about crisis, just in general. Right. So there's no suicide in your, um, in the name of your organization. No. So you're, it's, it's an umbrella that's it's an umbrella. much larger than that. Because I see mental wellness as so, like, you know, it's, it's a lot more than just like, yes, m most of the work that we do is helping people who are on the brink of a crisis. And also there is so much more involved in living a mentally well and strong life. 
So we wanted to have a name that would encompass that whole experience. Understood. Um, yeah. So let's talk about it. You gave a few different examples. Friends, parents, faculty. Let's talk about friends because I think, um, I don't know if everyone has experienced that, but I think that it's more common for someone to confide in a friend than it is in their parents or faculty. Yeah, usually. Right. So what is, what is it that you're recommending? Can you give us, um, maybe let me ask a question this way. What are some things that maybe are a little bit counterintuitive that someone may not naturally think that when they okay. come to training, they, they learn? So I'll give you an example from something that happened today. We did a suicide prevention training specifically for the campus leaders. And one of the things that I um, was sharing with them is when you walk into a situation where a friend confides in you, well, let me start by saying that most often a person who is in crisis or thinking about suicide is not going to say it directly, not because they don't want help, not because they don't want to stay safe, but because the potential consequences of the actions of asking for help are very scary for them. Am I going to be turned away? Am I going to be told that I'm just a drama queen? Am I going to be hospitalized? Am I going to lose my job? Is my spouse going to leave me? Am I not going to get into the school I want? There's a lot of fear associated with it. So more often, what we see is that people who are thinking about suicide will engage in behaviors that sort of invite people to pay attention to them, right? Like, please notice that I'm behaving in a way that is not like me, and I want you to ask me what's wrong, right? Now, it seems a little counterintuitive because if you want help, why don't you just say so, right? Um, but the, the goal when I'm teaching a class like this is to help people understand that if you, if you just kind of tune in and drop into the awareness of what's happening in a person's life, and that doesn't mean you have to become like an expert on their life or a Sherlock Holmes. It's just noticing Something in their behavior is something in the way in the way they're speaking. You're something, saying they'll often make it so obvious. Is that what you're saying? If it's if a call you, for help, yes, then, yes, yeah. yes, they will. The example that I that I like to give is of um, Kevin Hines, who's a suicide attempt survivor. He survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge in 2000. And the example that he gives in his story is that he woke up his father at six o'clock in the morning just to, on the day of, that he, of his planned suicide just to tell his father that he loved him. Why would you do, like, what's right. your purpose, right? He, got, he gets on the bus to go to the Golden Gate Bridge and he's crying. And he says even, I wish somebody would have turned around on the bus and asked me what was wrong. I would have told them everything. But nobody asked. They just looked at me and they were like, what's with this weird kid, right? So How old was he? At the time he was 18. And now he's in his late 30s. He survived. He was one of only 34 people to survive a, a, a suicide attempt by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. One of only how many people? 34. 34. There's been over 5,000 suicides on the Golden Gate Bridge oh, wow. since, since, it's, since it was built. I grew That's up in it. San Francisco. There was a suicide almost every week when I was growing up. Wow. Have they yeah. done something about that? Yes, they have. With a lot of um, resistance from the community and from the, from the taxpayers of San Francisco, I believe it was in 2014 that they established safety nets under the bridge. And for years, it was a big fight between the municipality and taxpayers because people felt that putting money towards a safety net was not worth it because what's going to stop the person who's suicidal from just going and looking for another option? Right, that would be my question. Right. right. But here's what I've learned, and this is what I try to impart on people, that most people who are at risk or who are seriously contemplating suicide um, 
experience a sense of tunnel vision and also ambivalence. So tunnel vision is they, their, their focus becomes narrowed in on looking for a solution for their pain and they equate the solution with their, of, the pain, of the pain with dying. And also there's a sense of ambivalence. Do I actually want to die or do I just want this pain to end? And this is how I, this is the only option I see. And so taking away the means for suicide, even temporarily, we're not looking to shift a person's mind forever because that's not possible, but you shift their mind in the moment in those 10 seconds that forces them to literally step back and think, what am I doing? Right? Um, the other thing that I try to impart on people, which seems counterintuitive, is you're not there to fix. You're there to feel with them. Right? If a person is confiding in you that they're struggling, your job is not to tell them why they should live, why they should get over it, all the positive reasons that they have to stay alive because they don't see it that way. You know, when, when, when I have struggled in my life, when I've gone through difficult periods in my life and people would say, just look at the bright side, think about all the positive things, gamzu litova, I'd be like, excuse me, like there's the door, right? I don't want to hear it. And so I think for people who are in that much pain, what they want is someone to sit with them and feel with them and empathize with them and then come up with a solution. You have to build that trust first before you can be like, okay, now what are we going to do to keep you safe? Obviously, if someone's in a very immediate sense of crisis, you have to skip that part, right? But if the person is for, at, to a certain degree of sound mind, you have to work on building trust. And that only happens through active listening. It can't be done through trying to fix their problems for them. So this um, advice can apply either for a friend, parent, or faculty. Yeah. It's just noticing if a pattern is off and being right. comfortable enough asking the, the and question. And it's uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. It's extremely uncomfortable. You know, one of the things I find about mental health, and I wonder if um, you find this as well, is that people feel like we need an expert to talk about this. Yeah. And a regular everyday person shouldn't shouldn't touch this. We don't know what to do. Right. And I mean, do you see this? A hundred percent. Do you see it as a problem like I do? That it's a problem that we're waiting for the professionals? No, that we think this is, we need a professional. Because what you're talking about is sitting down and feeling with another person. Right. And that's something that could be done. Yeah. By anyone. Right. We just you need don't to need to be feel. a professional. You just need to be a human being. Exactly. That's exactly the point. And I make it very clear in every training, in every conversation, in every crisis call, and I didn't mention this, but since we start, since I started this work in the last five and a half years, like definitely in the last five and a half years, my phone number has become synonymous with crisis management. So I get phone calls every day of the week at all hours of the day from people who are like, I got your number from this person who told me you might be able to help me. I have someone in my life who's in crisis, X, Y, Z. Right. And the thing I've I said a few. Yes, you have. <laughs> and I'm very grateful that you trust me. Thank you. Um, one of the things that I tell them is that you can only do the best you can with the tools you have. There are certain things we need to leave to the hands of the professionals, but we don't need to wait for a professional to get involved to have a human to human connection with someone who's suffering. And you don't have to know the pain of suicidal ideation to know what suffering feels like. So people say to me, like, I don't know how to connect with this person. I've never been through this. I was like, okay, but you've been through pain. You're a human being, right? You can drop in and, and be with them. That's all, that's all we need, right? Um, there's a quote by a writer that I love, and I'm not going to remember the whole thing, but 
part of it is that the human soul is not looking to be fixed or advised or saved. It's just looking to be met as it is. And that when we meet people who are suffering, when we meet the soul of the sufferer as it is, we help them recognize their own innate tools for healing, which are the only tools that really at the end of the day are accept- like, those are the tools that a professional, a lay person, a friend can only get you so far. There's a lot of inner work that has to happen. But through support and love and empathy and listening, we can help them recognize that those tools are there. So that's some of the training that you're trying to offer people is that that first step of meeting someone where they're at, everyone can do. 100%. We're all crisis intervention specialists. Right. Right. And that, 100%. And I started as a lay person. I was doing this for two and a half, almost three years before I got trained as a specialist. And, and I'm also, I'm not a mental health professional yet. And I make that very clear to people when I talk to them. I'm not, I will be a social worker, God willing, in the next two years, but I'm not yet. And, but there's, there are things that I can, that anyone can do to support someone who's suffering. And you don't have, if you're waiting for the professional to come around, sometimes it's already too late. Yeah, I saw that a lot of that in the, um, in the 12 Steps where it was the blind leading the blind in a lot of ways. But yeah. it wasn't the blind. It was people right. who, who opened their eyes pe- in some way. I think people with the lived experience, and again, if you're human, you've suffered. So you have lived, lived experience. experience. It's that human-to-human connection that makes that difference in a person's life. You're not necessarily going to remember, you know, if you want to take it to the extreme, the EMT who took you to the emergency room, but you're going to remember the friend who came with you. Right. Right. Do you feel like this is uh, the barrier often to people? Meaning, if you don't notice a pattern, there's nothing you can do. Right. Right. Probably not much of a friend or a parent if you're not noticing the pattern. Right. And some people deliberately keep their head in the sand to not notice those patterns. Sure. But that's a whole other thing. Right. This is this is not talking to them. This is right. So okay, I'm noticing it. And do you feel like some of the reason most people won't approach it? You'd mentioned discomfort. I'm mentioning a second possibility, which you seem to. Um, agree with the concept of it, that not feeling comfortable because of that, per- that person's perceived limitations around this, this area. Right. Are, those, are, are there more? Are there others that you've I think noticed? it's the discomfort. I think it's the perceived limitations. I also think it's the fear that they're going to say something wrong or that they're somehow going to make it worse and convince the person that they should, God forbid, follow through. Like, would I make it worse by bringing this up to them? So there's, there's depth. I feel like a lot of the work that I do is dispelling myth and helping people be uncomfortable with the uncomfortable. I've, inter- I've participated in over 300 crisis interventions over the years. It never gets easier. And I, and I really want people to understand that it should not get easier. The second you feel comfortable <laughs> with, with that, you've lost your touch. You know, you, you, because there's a sense of like, the life is on the line here. I need to be sensitive and, and engaged with what I'm saying and see this person as a person and not just as a problem. Right. Which right. is, that's the other issue. If we're only viewing a suicidal individual as a problem, we've already created a barrier, right? You have to see them for more than just that because they're not a problem. They're a person in pain. So we have to be able to, to do that internal homework to show up for, the, for people in that way. Is it something you, you recommend to, to ask someone point blank? Meaning, if I'm noticing someone whose patterns are off and I'm saying, hey, is everything okay? And let's right. say, I, you know, I don't get a response that's um, 
very clear one way or another. If I'm feeling something, asking that question point blank, like, have you thought of... Killing um, yourself? Have you yeah. thought of taking your life? Yes, but I think there's an art to that conversation. The first thing is asking, hey, are you okay? Is pretty vague because they can slip right under that, right? So if you're noticing that someone is struggling or suffering, and that doesn't, I really want to make it clear that not just, just because someone's having a bad day or week or going through a really dark spell in their life doesn't automatically mean that they're thinking about suicide, right? Like I give this personal example all the time. When I was 22, I went through a divorce and it was the darkest period of my life. At no point in that process was I ever considering suicide. But to an outsider, you could look at what was going on in my life and be like, oops, there's someone who's not doing well, right? So the first thing is to... And they would have been right. And they would have been right, 100%. Right. But there's a difference between I'm not doing well and I need support and I'm not doing well and I need support or I'm going to die. Right. Right? So the first thing is to come to the conversation with your evidence, so to speak. Hey, I'm noticing that recently, A, B, C, D. You're taking longer to respond to texts. You're disengaged at work. You're not eating. You're not sleeping. You're posting alarming things on social media. You're giving away your belongings. You're doing things that are not like you. And because I care about you and love you, I feel inclined to ask you if those things that I'm noticing are in any way related to suicide. And I've had people ask me that question to me, right? I think if you come with evidence and you come with empathy in a direct, kind way and ask the question as a follow-up to what you're seeing, you're much more likely to get a real direct answer from them than like, hey, you're having a bad day. You're thinking about killing yourself. You're coming out of left field. You have no reason to ask that, right? Um, and I just want to dispel the myth that asking someone directly if they're thinking about suicide could plant the idea in their head. The thing is, is that if a person is already thinking about suicide, you're making them aware of the fact that you see them. And if they're not thinking about suicide, there might be something else going on, right? I tell people, no is still a door opener. If they say no to suicide, there might be a yes to something else. And you could still human to human sit with them in their pain. It doesn't have to be that level of crisis for you to not be able to support them. But you would go that strong off the bat. A hundred percent. Absolutely. From lived experience, from the evidence in the research, the best way to get through to someone who is struggling that much is to be as direct as possible with kindness. Right. Not with judgment, not with like, hey, are you suicidal? Because if you are, like, here's what's going to happen to you, <laughs> right? Like, I'm sorry. If someone did that to me, I would shut down immediately, right? I would not. That doesn't work, right? Kindly and directly. What does, God forbid, plant the idea in a person's head is if suicide is glorified, right? The example I gave is, are you familiar with the, two, the Netflix series 13 Reasons Why? No. Okay, it aired in 2006 or seven. It's a show about a young woman, a, a high school age student who dies by suicide and she leaves 13 clues for her friends, kind of as a scavenger hunt of this is why I did it. And the show over glorified the idea of suicide A by making it something like she did this thing and her friends are mourning over her and she's up in heaven looking at all the people who care about her. That's not what's happening in real life. That was the first thing. The second thing is that the scenes in which her suicide completion happens were extremely graphic. Like if a young kid, a 15-year-old, 16-year-old who's already struggling goes on Netflix and watches the show, 
which by the way has since these scenes have since been removed and Netflix was sued by families who lost their children to suicide in the same way that this girl died by suicide oh, wow. in the show. Okay. Like they basically just handed them a blueprint. So you're saying there's some basis for that concern, but definitely it's very it's very narrow. But it's very narrow and it's if it's you know, today with social media, there are a lot of people who are struggling who kind of glorify this idea of unaliving themselves. That's what they call it because, you know, with the algorithm, if they say the word suicide, it's not going to pass. So they use the word unaliving. So if you're glorifying it in that way or you're making it, God forbid, something to admire or look up to, that's a danger. But having a direct conversation with someone and saying to them, hey, I see that you're suffering and I'm not afraid to ask you about this is a very different conversation. Yeah, I've had a thought and I probably shared it before in front of this microphone that in order to effectively help someone, we have to not be overwhelmed by yeah. their problem. If we're overwhelmed, then now we have two overwhelmed people by the same problem. Yeah. And the example that I give is, you know, if a child is having a tantrum and like they're kicking and screaming on the floor and you go, what's wrong? Are you okay? Why are you crying? Oh my God. Huh? They're not getting better because you're freaking out for, on their behalf. They're getting worse because they see your volume go up. So their volume goes up. If you sit with them and give them their space to buy on their own, calm down, which might take 20 minutes, right? And then you say, hey, buddy, what's going on? Very different conversation. Right. There's someone calm that can handle right. the... So I tell people, and I, I said it so many times this weekend that I feel like now it's coming out of my ears, but I'm saying this to you for the first time. If you know going into a conversation with a friend that you're going to ask them about suicide, you must, for the sake of your, your own safety and their safety, do your own homework before going in to make sure that you feel centered. That's not to say that you're not going to get blown off kilter in the course of the conversation because it's scary, but... You know, you take those three minutes to be like, okay, this is hard, but I'm going to do it and I'm going to breathe. And like, I do this all the time. I get crisis calls from all over the world and they, the person on the phone can't necessarily see what I'm doing. I give myself a hug. I hug myself as I'm talking to them because I need my nervous system to be regulated and calm so that I can be calm for them so that they can calm themselves. Is a hug enough? Sometimes not. <laughs> Sometimes not. Sometimes after I get off a crisis call, I go for a run for 20 minutes, right? Or in the middle of the call, I'll like put myself on mute and eat a piece of chocolate, <laughs> <laughs> whatever it takes, you know? Um, but, but what's interesting about getting a hug is that our nervous system regulates through physical, I mean, through many things, but partially through physical touch. And our bodies don't know the difference between physical touch that we receive from someone else or from ourselves. So that 20 second hug that you're giving yourself, you're engaging your inherent tools right there to be like, okay, this is hard and I'm holding myself and I'm giving myself compassion because I'm holding space for someone else and it's hard for me. And it's okay that it's hard for me because I'm a human being, right? I'm not exempt from this affecting me just because I'm a specialist, right? right? If, it did, if it didn't affect me, I think I would quit this line of work. Right, you'd be the wrong person. I would be job. the wrong person for this, yeah. Does it change over time in terms of like the amount of cases and the numbers and the way it affects you? I think in the beginning, I had this mentality that I was going to save every single person who came through my door. And then when that wasn't the case, I was so devastated that I, it like would throw me off balance for weeks. And so the phone calls have actually increased. COVID made it a lot worse. Um, and then I would say maybe in the last 18 months, I have seen an increase like I've never seen before. 
Um, and it lasts how long? 18 months. You're connecting that to COVID as well or not? Yes and no. I think COVID did us a massive disservice in shining a flash, a disservice and a service of shining a massive flashlight on the mental health problems that were already happening in the world before, mm -hmm. right? We had an epidemic in mental health before COVID happened. And then COVID was like, here, let me show you all the problems. And then I think now that people are returning to normal and they're not sure what normal is, and they're trying to find themselves in a world that is so different than it was three years ago. And TikTok is very different than it was three years ago. And the mental health conversations, I don't mean to bl blame everything on social media and on our phones, but it's a big problem. It's a huge problem. Okay, good. I'm glad you're going there because I wanted to um, zoom out a little bit in terms of some of the statistics, not to put you too much on the spot on them, but it's definitely on the rise and it's on the rise with, um, with teens. Absolutely. But it's also on the rise with middle-aged with, with middle men. Um, look, suicide has been the second leading cause of death in teenagers ages 15 to 18 for the last 10 years. Since COVID, that number has changed to 10 to 18. We've added five more years of risk that now my work started with high schools and colleges. I'm now getting phone calls from elementary schools. That wasn't happening five years ago. That wasn't happening three years ago. It's, 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 it's scary. It's alarming. And that I see how you can connect to social media because there is a... If you take a child who has an underdeveloped brain, right? It's from the time a kid hits puberty between 10 and 13 years old, essentially until 30 when their brain development stops... Their brain is like a house under construction. And a house under construction is not a house that functions properly. It's going to be beautiful eventually, but it doesn't have functioning anything, right? And so when you take a child who is already prone to risk because their brain is not working effectively, and then you hand them literally a comparison machine where, and, a, and an information machine where in 30 seconds, they think they're learning everything there is to know about ADHD and depression and anxiety and bipolar and BPD. I have so many kids call me and they give me their diagnosis. Have they seen a psychiatrist? No. Have they ever been to a therapist? No. No, but I, ha I know I have BPD. How do you know? I learned it on TikTok. Oh, this is the number of phone calls I have gotten, Ellie, are like terrifying. I, it was funny because I had this conversation with was a 20-year-old not long ago. And his parents asked me to meet with him. When I sat down with him, asked him what's going on, and he gave me all his diagnoses. Yeah. And I said, "Have you?" Earlier in the conversation, um, he had said that I'm the first person he's talking to, and he has never spoken to a therapist. And then when I, as we continued talking, all within the few minutes, he gave me like three disorders. Yeah. And I'm like, "How do you know? How do you know that?" <laughs> How do you know? Social media. I said, he, didn't say, he didn't say he's like, just research. That's what he said. Right. But research. The <laughs> easiest form, kids are not using Google anymore. They're using TikTok and Instagram. I had a young woman come to me with a PowerPoint presentation about her diagnoses. Not from a therapist, not from a doctor, not from a psychiatrist, from her own homework. And what is the impact of that, you think? I think that it narrows a child's mindset into thinking that there's no way out. This is what I have. This is what I am, maybe. This is what I am. And the risk becomes that they're over-identifying with the illness and that they're over-pathologizing over themselves. I can't be helped because this is my identity, right? 
And I tell people all the time, suicidal ideation is not who you are. It's a symptom of issues that you're experiencing. It's not who you are, right? But we are, there is a risk in over-identifying with an illness, right? The same way that a cancer patient might over-identify with having cancer, but this is like a different level. This is a totally different level. Okay, so I still want to stay a little zoomed out. So prior to COVID, like you said, this was a problem. Definitely. As well, prior to TikTok. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) This was a problem. So, and keeping the conversation focused on, on teens, you're saying the problem is, the problem is expanding. And getting younger. And getting younger. So it's expanding. The, the numbers are higher. Yeah. And the ages are younger. I think we're very quickly looking at suicide becoming the first leading cause of death in teenagers in the next five years. What is number one? I believe it's drunk. It's car accidents. Car accidents. It was homicide. It's now car accidents. And then suicide. Um, so zoomed out, what do you think is going on? Meaning social media is also a Definitely. symptom. So one, I think from a biological and biochemical perspective, you have young children who have always been raw and susceptible because their brains are changing and they're going through puberty and their hormones. And it's besides for the fact that their brains are not able to function at, at the capacity, it's a lot of newness, Right. First romantic relationship, first friend breakup, first learning how to drive, going away to college, um, experimenting with drugs and alcohol for the first time, right? We're also seeing in our society today an increase, very high increase in loneliness. Um, this sense of busy being a badge of honor. I, the, the amount of extracurriculars that 10 to 18-year-olds have today would not have been normal when I was in high school 13 years ago, right? Like, yeah, we all had a lot of things going on, but a 10-year-old who's starting school at 7.15 in the morning and only gets home at six o'clock at night to five hours of homework, that's not a lot of time for like, that's a lot of time to think about anxiety and stress and how overwhelmed you are. That's not a lot of time to learn how to be with your body, learn how to regulate your emotions, learn how to breathe. They have no time to breathe. They're holding their breath all day long. Um, Social media is definitely a factor. Um, I think a big one also is um, the fact that we are such an instant gratification society today and kids are growing up with everything just readily being available to them. They don't necessarily understand what it means to work hard for something because all you have to do is go on Amazon and buy something and it will be at your door in five minutes or 24 hours, right? The concept of delayed gratification, the concept of I work hard and put in effort and I'm not going to see results right away and that doesn't mean I'm a failure. Today's kids, I'm talking about young children and teenagers, are seeing, you know, if it doesn't work out the way I expect it to within the first 10 minutes of me putting in my effort, I give up. That means I'm a loser, I'm a failure. And they're internalizing those messages. And it also doesn't help, with all due respect to parents, And I don't know how hard it is to parent teenagers because my daughter's only three. But there's a lot of parental pressure today, right, to to check off all the boxes, to get into the best school, to be the top of your class, to be the best pianist, to be the best soccer player. We've, We've let go of enjoying hobby for the sake of hobby. And now it's like I have to do it as a career or else. I think adults suffer from that too, but not the same way that kids today do. 
do you feel like in your work you're you're dealing with maybe the the symptoms of something that's kind of coming rushing at you versus the the source of it and some some people have to right you have to I think you have to a, do that. I'm a not lot discounting of a lot of the work of that I do is putting out fires right and dealing with the symptoms and part of and the, that's where you are in the food chain I wasn't discounting right for sure healing chain whatever you but I think but if you were sending of, a message upstream it I think that so many professionals today are not able to reach the source of the issues partially because they have a very hard time building relationships with young people. And I think a lot of that comes from um, a lack of humility of like, if they're coming to me with their problems, I'm a 45-year-old PhD. I know more than this, t- than this 15-year-old. I know what's better for them than they do. You know, I recently had a conversation with a mutual friend of ours, Remy Garari. Mm-hmm. And he... I think he'll be on here soon. He's, <laughs> he's the best. <laughs> so much, the whole conversation kept coming back to humility and kindness, humility and kindness. And that's what I think that's a huge missing piece in teenagers see through BS. They are, they are BS reading machines. <laughs> if they walk into a room with an adult, they can read you in five minutes. Are you someone I can trust or not? And if you walk into a room with a professional and immediately the professional is telling you, I have all the answers and I know how we're going to fix this, you've already lost them. So, so much of the struggle of getting to the source and the source could be a variety of things, but it's really about helping them feel at home with the discomfort of being human, right? So many of our problems, I feel, that are arising in today's society come from our discomfort, our inability to turn in, to to see ourselves as we truly are, and to love every part of ourselves, including the parts we don't like. And that has to that has to come from humility on the on the on the part of the professional who's helping them. So you think it goes back to the professionals? That also feels to me a little bit downstream because it's getting to a professional, but it's maybe right. further upstream so, than you because so you're at crisis. So upstream though would be, but it's I mean, upstream from you, right? But like if I had it my way in a perfect world, mm-hmm. I would start this with with educating parents as soon as their kids as soon as they're pregnant. As soon as a woman is pregnant, it's like, let's talk about this. Not about suicide, but about how do you help your child feel whole in a world that is going to make them feel like they're not whole. Understood. You know, kindergarten teachers, second grade teachers, fifth grade teachers. I'm almost 32 years old, and I can still remember as clear as day as if it happened yesterday, the teachers who were, or the adults who were kind to me when I was struggling and the adults who were not. And unfortunately, the adults who were not were, it's a much higher number than the adults who were. But, you know, I'm not saying that all the responsibility has to be on the adults, but in a way it does, because who are they, who are right. children learning from? Well, if you go to parents, that's great because every child has a parent. So, right. Right. You hope. Most, right. Most of the time present in their life. And even if not, there's a, Stand a guardian, in. right. Right, there's a stand-in for that person who... I think if we could equip guardians with tools to be able to, one, recognize their own issues and not reflect them on their kids, and B, help their kids feel comfortable with the discomfort, help them feel like they can be fortified and strong and have a strong foundation so that they can weather the storm. Because like life is full of pain, but suffering doesn't have to be part of the picture, Right but they have to learn that from somewhere. 
And unfortunately, most of the most of the teenagers who I am working with are learning that only through the lived experience of ending up in psych wards and in hospitals, right? They're not learning that suffering doesn't have to be part of the picture through normal everyday human experiences and through human connection. Understood. There's there's a lot of different things you said, but one of the folks I want to highlight on, on you know, I, people ask me all the time why I do what I do. What am I doing this? I like calling it a podcast. Podcast, one thing. What do, <laughs> why do I do this thing? And um, I said recently, I've been saying the reason I do what I do is to give humans permission to be fully human. Yeah. So I feel like that's a very good description of what I'm trying to do as well. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's one aspect of it, and I think some of that is definitely. You know, I guess there's no there's there's no way for me to know for sure because I didn't live 30, 40 years ago. Was it the same then? Is the problem worse? Is there something different? The problem's definitely different. worse. Right. There is an aspect of that, yeah. of the problem being worse, but is this problem permission for humans to be fully humans? I wonder if part of what's happening, because aspects of things that I'm involved with, like say porn addiction, which I spoke a lot of. So everyone has had sex problems since the beginning of time. Right. And I think uh, Adam and Eve, as soon as the story, <laughs> as soon as they ate from uh, the tree of knowledge, very first thing was the awareness of their, of their bodies, shame, their awareness right. of their of their sexuality and right the need for that to be somewhat private or concealed in some way. So this idea has kind of been with us forever. But what is different now is that um, our parents, and there's different levels of this, my parents had no idea of what my experience was because there right. was no internet. Right. And then parents who did experience internet don't know what it's like to have TikTok, s smartphones, and right. right, and these things. It's a completely different level. Like I, I got addicted to pornography from dial-up internet. Yeah, and that's a different world. This was even before laptops were popular. I'm yeah. talking about having these a desktop. Yeah, these massive machines in a home with a lot of kids, and still being able to right. access pornography in a way that was much more difficult 15, 20 years before. Right. And today, well, I mean, kids have these. So the tip Little of super fingers. machines in there. And they're getting them younger and younger. Yeah, it's being fed to them. It's being fed to them. Yeah. I mean, my daughter's three. She knows how to turn on her iPad and Google Coke. Like, she knows how to find a Coco Melon video without my help. It's a little scary. It's scary. Like, I leave the room for five minutes. I come back. I'm like, how did, what? I and didn't my, even turn it on for you. My three-year-old daughter today <laughs> turned on. I, 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 she woke up before me, and I put on something on Netflix. And by the time I woke up, she was showing my son a different video. <laughs> and it's like, this is a really funny video. And I, whatever, I, I don't know what it was, but a different Netflix. It was a Christmas yeah. <laughs> video on Netflix. I'm like, how did you, how did you get to this? But uh, yeah, it's tough. And every parent, before we parents, we're sure we're not going to give right. kids phones or TVs or anything. But A hundred percent. I was like, before my daughter was born, I'm like, she's not getting an iPad until she's 10. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure we can do better, but. Uh, yeah definitely in terms of being perfect it's it's uh it's rough so i wonder if that connects to some of the humility you mentioned with professionals whereas maybe in a normal environment where society is progressing at rates that it did previously 40 years ago right then parents understood the challenges of their their children but now it's progressing it's in a way that every six months it's a new thing 
I am constantly finding myself on my toes with the research and with catching up with what's happening. As soon as I think I know what's happening, the story changes. And and I think that a big part of that, it's also exhausting. It's exhausting to be a parent and to be like, wait, I thought I had it figured out and now things are changing. And I had a hard time relating to my child two years ago. What now? Oh my gosh. Right. There's a multi-billion dollar war for people's attention. Like yeah. that is the commodity. That is yeah. the that is that is the value. I have three million people's attention for sixty seconds a day. How much are you going to pay for that? Yeah. I have thirty million people's attention right. for one hundred twenty seconds a day. How much are you going to pay for that? And and I think the thing is also, so much of it comes down to humility. Again, yes, but I think also in terms of like parent to child relationship, is recognizing that we don't have all the answers as right? parents. As parents. I don't know. I don't know all the right things. And also, my child's journey is different than mine. Yes, I carried her inside of me. Yes, I brought her into the world. Yes, I'm raising her. She's not me and I'm not her. And just because I didn't go through these challenges doesn't mean she won't. I've had parents call me from all over the world and say to me, but none of our other children dealt with this. None of our other kids ever exhibited this kind of behavior. We never had these problems. I'm like, okay, but you're not the same person. We, we think of our children and our spouses and our families as extensions of ourselves. They're not. They're their own people. And we have to treat them as their own people. Right. I saw a line from, uh, no, I saw a short video from Rabbi Shea's Taub where he said that, you know, people feel, at least, you know, from his listeners, as a child of God. Yeah. He said, but then they think they're, Child is a grandchild. Yes. Oh God. Says they're not. They're <laughs> no, they're not. They're, they're a, child a child just like you are. Right. They have their own journeys. And they so. all have their own journeys and everybody's going to go on their own path and everybody's going to deal with their own challenges. And I think it requires from us a sense of flexibility and openness, right? To be flexible with one child is going to be one way, one child is going to be another. I had a conversation with a, one of the women who I was at, at the campus I was speaking to this weekend and she was asking me, um, about dating and relationships. And she said, she was like, how do I know what I'm looking for in a partner? And, and how do I know this? And how do I know that? And we got into the topic of children's education. And she was like, well, I want a spouse who's going to be okay with me sending my kids to a certain school. And I was like, hold up. You don't know yet what kind of educational needs your unborn, non-existent child is going to need in 10 years from now, right? Like, and I've, I gave the example from, from within my own family. My youngest sister went to public school, kindergarten through fifth grade, because the educational needs that she needed were not school, was not something that Orthodox schools could offer her, right? That's educating a child according to their needs. Everyone's going to have different needs. If you come into it already with the idea of like, all of my kids have to be this way, you're, they're going to fall through the cracks. Right. I heard a story of someone who went to the Rebbe and complained that one of his children weren't behaving the way he wanted. And he said, I don't understand what, what went wrong. I, I gave all my kids the same education, put them through the same schools. Yeah. I don't understand what happened here. He said, well, that was the, that was the problem. That was the problem that right. you gave them all the same education right. and you didn't tailor it. We, we tend to look at the people closest to us as if they're one big blob with us. Right. And that's our children, our spouses, our, our, our parents. Right. The day that I, individuated from my parents was the day that I was like, whoa, they're not me. I'm not them. We have different life journeys. What? 
And it's a big realization. And I think for some parents, unfortunately, that only comes when their child is in crisis. And they then they realize like, oh, there's a different path that this kid is going on. And I need to be flexible in my approach to help them not get on my path, but get on their right path. It's hard work. It's not easy. But what's the alternative? Right. I imagine for uh, my children also young, but I imagine that it is a, a difficult um, process. Yes. I don't envy parents of teenagers and I simultaneously look forward to and dread that day <laughs> because I know that it's going to require a different level for me. Right. But that's how life works. But it's on the parent, not the teenager. That's right. the child. That's what you're saying. It should be because where are they learning? Where are they learning how to live if not from us, from the adults? They're picking it up from somewhere. It should, education starts in the home, right? So if we can empower parents to be able to recognize, like, this is my child's needs and I can meet them where they're at, even if it's unfamiliar and uncomfortable to me, we're much better off and we're doing a much better service to young children who are struggling than if we keep them in a box because it's comfortable for the adults. 100%. You said something earlier about COVID being both a like the cause and a gift because it it showed what was underlying and maybe maybe that's a way to look at the whole kind of period that we're in. In recovery there's a concept of the road getting narrower. Mm -hmm. And what that means and maybe this is like Moses is a good example for this. He was punished for something that seemed relatively innocuous. Right. He wasn't allowed to go to the land of Israel because he um was too tough with the rock or something right, like that. Right. I don't know the exact details, but I remember when I was taught it, the concept was that he didn't have the room for error that the average person had. Mm. And that comes with a, a blessing and a curse. Right. It's kind of the same thing happens in recovery. They say the road gets narrower that as, as, as you go, what it takes to fall off the wagon is a, is a little bit less. You've right. got to be a little bit more precise, a little bit more right. sharp. There's uh, In the early days, there's this kind of pink cloud, and it's like, oh, everything's going to be great, and I found this new way, and slowly over time, it just seems to, you know, you're, you're walking on a more of a, a razor's edge, where, yes, on the one hand, things are progressing, and the struggle isn't as tough, but the stuff that can throw us off are... It's different. Yeah, hitting a rock right. versus, you know, something more egregious. And maybe the environment that we're in, I've never quite articulated that this way, but maybe the environment that we're in overall is just, you know, with social media and with um, tons of information being shared with, with children at, at a very young age and with the speed of change happening much more ra rapidly, the problems that are already there get exposed. Yeah. Maybe the road is just a little bit narrower. Right. And I think that is definitely what happened with COVID. It's like, I think we all knew that there were problems. The suicide rate was high in the last 20 years. Um, people were struggling. But I think what happened was suddenly the pandemic happened and everyone was not in the same boat, but we were all in the same ocean, right? Of like, we're all in this together. We're all going through this pandemic together. Hey, I'm struggling. You're struggling. Oh my gosh, we're all struggling. But it also... I don't know. I think in many ways it did us a disservice because, yeah, we all identified that we're struggling. And now what do we do about it? Well, I think it also exposed certain underlying things. Um, I don't know if you've heard the line from Warren Buffett. He said, when the tide, come, when the tide comes in, you see who's swimming naked. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, from a business standpoint, is 
you had a market, let's say, for the last couple of years where there was a lot of money in the system, low interest rates, and then that's an environment where it's very easy access to capital and people are able to give the perception of things being okay. But once the purse strings get a little bit tightened, I say, okay, let's, see what's, let's see. see what's really there. Right. And I think that COVID did a lot of that to us yeah. as a society. Uh, that's, in a lot of ways, how this um, emerged. Yeah. This whole, this, the in search of more process is that I saw that what was essential for addicts in recovery now seemed like they were essential to for everyday everybody. people. Yeah. I said, hey, these are things that maybe this idea of being anonymous, <laughs> they talk about in 12 steps, maybe it was 1930s, but 2030s, <laughs> we've got to have something else, right? More of the world needs these tools yeah. because the road is getting narrower. Because, right. And I think COVID... That COVID exposed a lot of the underlying, the underlying problems, and social media maybe is exposing a lot of the underlying problems. Not as much. A hundred percent. I think also the you know the everyday average Joe. In this last three years, maybe for the first time in their lives, had to come face to face with their own demons. Like you know, if you're not an addict, if you're not suicidal, then you then like oh, but my life is not that bad. And then suddenly when the world shut down and we're all home all the time with each other and you're like actually have time to sit down and think because you have nowhere to go, suddenly you're like, wait a second. How is shame driving my life? How is anxiety? Paying attention to the fact that I've been anxious. I had someone say to me recently, suddenly I'm paying attention to the fact that I've actually been driven by anxiety for most of my life. I never paid attention to that before because I was always too busy to notice. Right. And it's like, so that in one hand, it's like that exposure could potentially give us the tools to be like, okay, so now I, now I can heal, or now I can at least start healing. I don't think that anyone ever heals, period. Speak for yourself. Why? No, okay. No, but like I think it's a healing. I was healing, joking. I was right. Joking. It's a yeah. healing journey. I think yeah. that if you claim to be healed ED, yes. then you're not facing what, what else if, there is. <laughs> if you think you found the way, you're lost. Right. Yes. Um, but for many people, what that did was just like overwhelm and bombard them. Like, oh, wait, I've been anxious my whole life shoot, now I'm anxious about the fact that I've been anxious my whole life. Now I don't know what to do with it. I'm just going to fall apart, right? Um, recognition is the first key, is the first step, right? And that can almost be like handing ourselves the key to the jail cell. The question is, do we stay in the prison cell or not? And some people choose to. So the recognition of? That I'm struggling, right. that I'm suffering, that something is not right. So exposing those, those issues. Yeah. But if we take it back to parenting, where maybe a parent not giving children everything they need in previous generations, they could have skated by. Yeah. And the kid could have made it even without okay parenting. Sure. And now that's much tougher. It is, but I think also we have to keep in mind that this, this, this concept of generational trauma definitely exists. And just because people were able to skate by doesn't mean they weren't suffering, and it doesn't mean that they're not handing they're suffering to their children. 100%, which is what right. I'm saying. I'm saying that the problem is there, but now it's... Right. And I think another, another part of it is like, if you think, for example, in Jewish history, who had time to face their anxiety and their depression when they were running away from persecution? Right? Like, you weren't necessarily facing those things when you were just trying to survive. You know, I talk... <laughs> we talk in my family a lot about how 
my grandparents who survived the Holocaust and my other set of grandparents who ex who survived the Turkish genocide and being expelled from Turkey and moving to Israel in dire poverty and having to start all over, they weren't necessarily thinking about how depressed they were because they were just trying to keep themselves fed. Kind of like clothes. the hierarchy of needs. Right? right. If you're worried about food, you're not worried about. hundred percent. And it's funny because people kind of poo-poo on, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but I think there's a lot of truth to that. That, yeah, you can try to meet your higher goals with without food and shelter, but like good luck. <laughs> you know, you're not getting very far. You know, not eating, not sleeping, not feeling that you have a safe environment to go home to does not lend itself very I mean, with some people, it does look at Viktor Frankl, right? He, he memorized and rewrote his entire book that was destroyed in Auschwitz from scratch when he got out. Not everybody had the fortitude to be able to do that. Right, he was certainly the exception, not the rule. Exactly. I mean, there is something to that if someone can find that level of meaning. For sure. But it's easier and, to get food than meaning. Right, exactly. Or I say it's easier to get food to everyone than it is to... And I think that so much of what we carry now as a generation is we're carrying our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents' pain that they were not able to heal, and now it's kind of on us. And that's a blessing and a curse. Right. You know, it's like, great, I got saddled with all of this stuff that I didn't ask for. But also we have better tools now, I think. And we also have more stability as a whole in society. It's not to say that people are not in dire poverty and struggling to make ends meet. For sure they are. But I think as a general society, we're doing a lot better than we were 60 years ago. And that gives it, us the ability to actually come face to face with our problems instead of just hunkering down and trying to survive. Right. In terms of things like poverty and age that people are living, length of age people are living, we are doing better than we were yeah. 60 years ago, the Definitely. percentage of people. Yeah, there is, I think we spoke about it on a discussion I had with um, Divi Bogart, Tora Bogart, where we... Who you introduced me to, and I love, and have oh, I made a the lot introduction? of... Yes, you did. And oh, I have, awesome. She's amazing. <laughs> so Rami Grari is the one who introduced yes. me to her. It's like a one big loop of everybody introducing <laughs> each other. That's good. Well, it's important to know each other. Yeah. And we, we spoke about that, that, you know, oftentimes the older generation will kind of put down younger generation, generation for making, right. making noise about these stuff. Right. It's like, we survived this. You survived a lot of stuff. For sure. But we don't want to. We right. want. And that's kind of the double-edged sword of luxury. I mean, this is, we, we have it even if we're, even people who don't have a lot of money and are impoverished, there's still things we can do that other generations couldn't. Could not. Like an Uber. Right. Or Instacart or right. things, you know, there's stuff. Or healthcare. Just getting basic healthcare is way more accessible now than it was even 50 years ago, right? It's, I, I, I definitely hear what you're saying about, you know, and I see this a lot in my work that when I speak to older parents or I speak to grandparents of people who are suffering, they're like, we survived the Holocaust. We survived the Soviet Union. We survived A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And I'm like, okay, those were your challenges. It's not to negate that your challenges were not hard. Different, different generation, different challenges. You have to be able to separate them in a way and be able to say like, okay, you had your battles, now we have ours. I taught a course in suicide prevention at the University of Kansas a few months ago, and the rabbi's wife said something to me that was so profound. She said, the previous generation's challenge was the survival of the soul right? The persecution, at least for the Jewish community, right? The persecution for being Jewish and having to hide their Jewish identity. Today, what we're dealing with is the persecution of the mind, but it's the internal persecution of the mind. 
different challenge doesn't mean that one is less important than the other, but we have to face it for what it is, which is an overwhelming huge challenge. Right. Again, it doesn't get it doesn't it doesn't go away just because someone discounts it, like you said earlier. Right. Ignoring it and pretending it doesn't exist, you know, what we resist persists. If you ignore it, it's just gonna find another way to come back. And it's going to come back again and again until you face it. Uh, you said earlier that we have uh, better tools. Did you mean anything by that? Do we have better tools to deal with um Did I say challenges? that? Yeah. <laughs> I think we have more accessibility. We definitely have more accessibility to tools. The question is, are we actually using them? You know, go into a Barnes & Noble or a bookstore, or just like look it up on Amazon. There are thousands of self-help books today. Thousands. On every, on every topic, on every type of therapy, on every everything. The question is, are you reading it and internalizing and actually using the tools? Or does it just become one more token on your bookshelf to be like, look at how well read and in tune with myself I am. Okay, but if you're not actually using what you're being taught, it's useless. Are there some favorites you have, books? Mindfulness and meditation, for me personally, have been as very a tool. effective as a tool. Okay, I was asking about a book, yes. but go, oh, go, a with, book? No, go with your answer. Oh, okay. Well, I'll tell you tools, but I'll also tell you books. Mindfulness and meditation for me personally have been life-changing. And that doesn't mean like sitting down and clearing your mind and going home and disappearing from existence. It's about learning how to be present with everyday experiences, whether or not they feel good, right? It's not about, oh, a positive, feel good all the time. I'm at peace with myself and my chakras are all aligned. It's like, no, I'm going through a challenging moment. And I'm able to be present with a challenging moment and respond to what's happening versus react to what's happening to me, right? Can I breathe through that? Yes. Right. <laughs> um, hi, Samuel. Oh, we got a, a guest. On the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how much you give us a couple minutes? Okay, after a short break, we're back. <laughs> You're talking about tools, tools. and books. And books. So she said mindfulness and mindfulness meditation. Mindfulness and meditation, but knowing that mindfulness is not about just erasing your thoughts and like turning off your brain because that's not physically possible. And as soon as you start to do that, that's when it's going to get really hard. Um, but learning how to live with every day, be present, aware, and accepting of what's happening, not in a form of resignation of like, okay, this is just what's happening, but being able to meet yourself where you're at so that you can respond instead of react. We spend most of our lives reacting to things rather than responding to them. And we're, we're reacting to stories that we've made up in our heads about why a person behaved the way they behaved or how something is going to go before we even get there, right? Like in the Uber ride on the way here today, I was focusing on my present moment awareness. I'm excited. I'm nervous. I'm going to hold both those feelings together and I'm going to breathe and just accept that that's how I'm feeling rather than like scroll on Instagram for 20 minutes to try to avoid that that's how I'm feeling, you know? Um, You're definitely speaking to Divi because she's <laughs> <laughs> very similar. It's, that's, yeah? you know, that's for me, in terms of the work that I do with others, so much of it is just coming into present moment awareness and feeling what I'm feeling in the moment and allowing myself like, this is uncomfortable. This is good. I don't feel this is going well. But rather than reacting and trying to like, you know, cover up the situation, just be in it. There's permission for humans to permission. be humans. Exactly. Um, I think another tool that's very helpful is um, talking to others and, and having at one, I'm not talking about 30,000 people on the internet, having one person in your life that you can turn to and say, hey, do you have 10 minutes for me to be able for me to bounce these ideas off of you or share with you what I'm going through, right? Um, 
But I really think a lot of it comes down to responding versus reacting. That so much of the so much of the work that I do for myself internally is undoing the stories that I've made up in my head about things that haven't even happened yet, right? Um, in terms of books, the whole brain whole brain parenting by um, Dr. Daniel Siegel is amazing. He also wrote a book about adolescence called Brainstorm, which I love. And I like literally hand it to everybody. I'm like, here, read this book. Um, another one that is really wonderful is, there's two by the same author. One is massive and I recommend it with caution. If you don't want to get into a thousand page book on mindfulness, don't read it. Um, it's called uh, Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn. And really the whole point of being mindful is recognizing that you're in it. Whether or not you're facing your life, it's happening now. So you might as well be present to it. He also wrote another book called Wherever You Go, There You Are, which is on practices for meditation and how to just become more at home with your body. Um, and then on suicide prevention, and I cannot remember the title of the book, but Kevin Hines' memoir about his experience of surviving suicide and then giving advice and, and support to people who are at risk. That's what he does today. Yes. Oh, it's called Cracked Not Broken, which is wonderful. And I I hand that to I hand that over to people all the time. Oh, and one more by okay. the by Daniel Siegel. I every book he has ever written is phenomenal, but The Whole Brain Child, uh, Brainstorm and also Mindsight about cultivating awareness of what's happening with us so that we don't behave in ways that we later regret because we're living with what we think is going on versus you know, our perspective of what's happening versus responding to the moment. Um, those books in just in my line of work and the ability to help people have been very impactful. But I also know that when I recommend those books to others, they come back to me. They're like, where has this been my whole life? Why didn't I know this when I was 20? Why didn't I know this when I was 50? So they're helpful for you? They're helpful for me and they're well. also helpful for I think only one person that I ever recommended any of those books to came back to me and was like, eh. <laughs> But usually it's like, okay, it's usually, usually when I recommend books, these books to people, they come back to me with like a form of resistance of like, I see why this helps. And I see how, if I integrate it into my life, it could be so impactful, but I don't have the energy to put right. in the work, which is, but I think that's why we need others. We're not meant to exist in a vacuum and just do things by ourselves. Right. But that's a short, long road for them right. if they want. Exactly. Yeah. If they want the short, long road, there's th there's the self-help books for you, you know? So on on that note of changing you, one of my theories, um, which I've shared, one of the theories, I just have point in theories, but my experience is more, is that you know, it always comes back to us. We're yeah. out there, especially um, where where that could get confusing is if if we're, not where it could get confusing, where we could need to remind ourselves of that more is if we're in the work of service. Yes. Then we can think we're there for other Others. people. But um, what I found for myself in doing the work I do is that it always comes back to me. It's not about the other. So is there are there ways um, that you're comfortable sharing, maybe specific ways that this work and the intensity of this work has has changed you in a meaningful way? Yes. To quote you, Ellie, I'm patient zero. Right. And the longer right. I do this work, the more I realize how much I'm patient zero. When I, 
you know, I didn't mention this before, but I'll say this now. Simultaneously to starting my work in suicide prevention with CETIN, I was also eight months or nine months out of a very, very intense divorce and marriage. I was suffering with depression and I had been suffering with depression and anxiety for a long time. But this big incident in my life really like brought it to the forefront and made me deal with it and forced me to deal with it for the first time. And it was two more minutes, three more minutes. Hi, Samuel. <laughs> I'm so happy you're here. <laughs> um, I, in a way, without even realizing, went into this line of work to kind of avoid my own problems. That like, here's an opportunity to help people who are suffering. I don't have to focus on my suffering anymore. I don't have to focus on my trauma. I don't have to focus on my work because he, God has given me the answer. The distractionable distractions. Totally. The, and the justification of all But it didn't, it didn't go away, right? And so I'm helping all of these people and I'm like, but why am I still so miserable all the time? And I was like, wait, maybe I have to turn the lens back on myself and recognize like, hey, I got to do the work. So, so let me drill, drill into this. And hello, Samuel, to all who are here. This part, we're <laughs> going to keep into the conversation. So this part, I definitely want to drill into this part of the conversation. You're saying that when you originally went into the work, part of it was that you were dealing with some intensity in your own life. Yeah. That was making you uncomfortable. And here you had a perfect distraction. To amazing, golden Huge opportunity. Huge crises. Yeah. I cannot deal with my problems. Yep. Because someone is about to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. And then you manufactured a um, conveyor belt yeah. of these crises yeah. that were just perfect as a way to... To not deal with what was happening to me. And, and then and how did you... COVID happened. Okay. And suddenly I didn't have anywhere to go. Okay, so we're going to talk about COVID. <laughs> no, but you like, weren't talking about COVID right, for other people. You were like, talking about COVID for, for yourself. For me, it was like suddenly for the first time in eight years since I had gone through that experience, I wasn't running anywhere. I wasn't getting on a plane. I wasn't getting on a phone call. I wasn't going to a training. I wasn't, I wasn't going anywhere. I was just sitting with it. And it was like, oh, wait, I thought that I was getting better. But really what I was doing was running away from facing the trauma that I went through and like he and helping myself heal. Um, and I, at that point, I had read all the books, I had been in therapy, I had done all the things, but I had done all the things as a way of like being of service to others. And I really had to flip it around to myself and be like, okay, I am never going to be effective with helping people if I'm not dealing with my own stuff. It's not going to work and I'm going to burn out and I'm going to be of disservice to others if I don't face my own stuff. So... Having an established mindfulness practice, um, being in therapy. And for me, therapy is not just talk therapy. I purposefully found and still to this day work with a holistic therapist who combines mind and body. So we will meditate, we'll do yoga together, we'll include movement, breath work, um, all kinds of different things into the session. So it's not just me sitting and intellectualizing my problems. Um, we don't have time to go into this, but psychedelics definitely helped right? Like plant medicine was definitely a key in this, but allowing myself, giving myself permission with love and compassion to be able to turn the lens on myself and be like, I am broken in so many ways. I'm going to love and accept myself with the broken parts because how can I ask somebody else to do that if I'm not doing that? 
myself. It's just not, it's like not fair, yeah. you know? You do the work. I'm fine. <laughs> You're the problem. No, it doesn't work that way, you know? And it, and it wasn't working. This is great. I hope that the, um, the people listening stayed long enough through this conversation <laughs> to see how the system really works. Yeah. All of these awarenesses weren't from other people as much as COVID wasn't. I'm noticing with so many other people that they were forced me, right. It was your it own. It was me sitting at home and not literally. It was like before. And my daughter was born six weeks before the pandemic started. So that already put me at home because I was like I was on maternity leave. I couldn't go anywhere. Um, Welcome back. <laughs> hi, Samuel. But um, then when COVID happened and it was like, I don't have any planes to get on. I don't have any bookings. I don't, you know, and the crisis calls that were coming in at the beginning of the pandemic, I was referring out most often because I was recognizing like, I got to deal with my own stuff and I cannot be helpful to these people because I'm so far deep into my own depression that I will, I'm physically incapable of being helpful right now. So how do, you, how do you make sure not to slip back into that that space? Small steps every day. I think that people have this misconception that healing is like this great, big, grand journey. Have you seen this meme on Instagram? How you think healing is going to go, a walk in the park, and how it actually goes. And there's a girl okay. on the spinning cups in Disneyland, and she's screaming at the top of her lungs, <laughs> okay. right? Yeah. So for me, it was like I could do all the big things. There's this concept of... Um, that um, another wonderful book by Jack Cornfield, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. You go on After your, the what? After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. You go on your honeymoon, you're so in love, you're so, everything's so wonderful, and then you come home and there's a pile of laundry to do, right? You have these big spiritual enlightened experiences. If you don't integrate that in small measurable ways into your everyday life, it does not matter, right? Like with psychedelics, that's why integration is so important because you have to be able to draw down what you've experienced into action. Um, and for me, it's meditating for three to 10 minutes a day, making sure I walk or do some form of exercise, even if it's only for a few minutes. I think people have this idea that it has to be go big or go home. And it's like, no, go small, go small and give yourself those measurable tools. And I also, I also now know myself better enough to be able to say, I don't have the capacity to take on this case right now. Let me refer you to somebody else. In the past, it was like, yes, give bring me on, everything. I am the cookie monster. I will take on everything and I will heal everybody. And now it's like, actually, my daughter had the flu and I haven't slept in three days. Here's somebody else who's reputable and can help you who's not me. Because it's not about me healing them. They're going to heal themselves anyway. So maybe I'm not the, per I'm not the person for them right now. And again, it's, it comes back to that humility. The second I was able to turn the camera on myself and be like, hold on, <laughs> hold on, Lee, like Miss High and Mighty, have you dealt with your own nervous system recently? No. <laughs> so like that was a big, and it continues to be a big part of my life is making sure that I have those things carved out for myself. So someone asked me recently, someone close to me asked me if, um, if psychedelics causes someone to focus too much mm. on themselves. <laughs> so... <laughs> Here's my, here's my take on it, and I'll quote one of my teachers. The most important relationship you are ever going to have in your life is with yourself, not with your spouse, not with your kids, not with because no one else is living your life for you and no one else is living in your own head. So the answer is yes, and that's the way it's meant to be. Yeah. yeah. Because 
if you're making it about other people, you're going to get to 120, you're going to die, and Hashem is going to... You know the story, Reb Zusha gets to heaven, yeah. and he asks, were you Reb Zusha? Or, like, I didn't want you to be somebody else. I wanted you to be yourself. And how are you going to do that unless you go inward? Right. It's You have to be able to, to, to do that. And again, bringing it back full circle, I think so many of the problems that we're facing today as a society is our inability to go inward. Right? Like, let me put the lens on everybody else. There was a young woman at, at the event that I spoke at this weekend who was noticing everything that everyone else needed. Somebody needed water. It was on the table before they even asked. I didn't get the cup of tea I wanted. She brought me a different cup of tea. Somebody needed an ice pack. She was already... And I said to her at one point, I said, you're really good at being compassionate to others. What about with yourself? And she gave me the world's biggest eye roll. She's like, I don't go there. I don't go. As a rule, I don't go to being nice to myself. If we can't do that to ourselves, you know, it's going to have a ripple effect in the way we treat other people. I uh, had the head of an organization reach out to me recently. Um, and they help with at-risk situations somewhat he said i really want to help get breath work for my for my guys and i said okay like happy to discuss it i like having these conversations what are you doing for yourself and he started giving me all the reasons in the world <laughs> that he doesn't need why it. why he can't and i said i kind of think it's a prerequisite i think you got to go there and he said and it's clear i mean when you see someone who's struggling and suffering and he's been at this and under a lot of stress for a lot of years, it's tough. It's tough to help people in crisis for, for a long time. Yes, it is. And he said, um, yeah, yeah, I'll get there, but what about my guys? What about my right. guys? What I said to him, I said, listen, I'm not trying to put a condition right. on this. I want to help your guys, but I also know the limitation. You're never going to take your guys further than you've taken yourself. Right. It's just not possible. And I say that, you know, when parents or guardians call me when they have a child in crisis, usually my first question is, and what are you doing for yourself? And I usually get a similar answer to what you got from this guy is, oh, I don't need anything. I'm fine. I'm like, are you really, though? First of all, besides for the fact that the emotional shock of having a teen in crisis is going to shake anyone to their core and acting like you're okay when your child has been hospitalized for multiple suicide attempts is not fair to you or to the kid. But also, if you're not doing your own homework, it makes it a lot harder to be there for your family. 100%. Okay, so I like this. I think that this discussion was a perfect metaphor um, for life. That we we went around in a bunch of different areas, which are interesting and compelling, and there's a lot to get from it. But at the end, it always comes back to ourselves. Yes, it does. And if we can do that, if we follow the journey of this, the microcosm, and then do that in the macrocosm, and do that times all of us, yeah, we could have something that looks... We're much better healers when we heal ourselves, I think. That is the... That's the whole point. That is the that is the healing. Yeah. The corner of the world we're most responsible to light up ourselves is the corner we're in. And we're all on the yeah. we're all on the road, right? No one is exempt from being on the road. You might be sitting on the road, but you're still on the road. Hundred percent. You know. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We'll do it again. Yeah, definitely.